This is the Longevity Now podcast, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. I'm your host, Justin Lowe, and in this episode, we are not going to talk about the latest biotechnological breakthrough, but rather something you should consider while waiting for rejuvenation science to come of age. Better health can be had by simple measures such as a better diet, more exercise, and precision nutraceuticals. We will talk with Dr. Christine Houghton and hear more about one particular molecule, sulforaphane, and how it can upregulate many cellular mechanisms to protect against the ravages of aging. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, the founder and chief science officer of Cell Logic, who's also an adjunct professor at the University of Queensland in Australia. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Christine Houghton. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you, Justin. Okay, give us, I gave you a little bit of an intro to the audience. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your science background? I was in um, clinical practice for about 30 years in nutritional medicine. So my background was in nutrition and dietetics. And um, as time went by, I decided I'd go off into research. So that's when I joined the University of Queensland some decade or so ago and did a PhD. My interest has always been in the properties of plant foods in particular and how they modify human biochemistry. And so I went into this PhD project on phytochemicals and it didn't take me very long before I realised that there's a compound found in cruciferous vegetables and in particular derived from broccoli called sulforaphane. And so then most of my PhD was devoted to sulforaphane in the context of the properties of phytochemicals in human health. So having done that, the logical extension to that is to be able to grow broccoli sprouts and produce products that are suitable for clinicians because uh, from my clinical background, I didn't know any of this when I was in clinical practice. And I just really wanted to take the opportunity to explore this further and introduce the therapeutic potential of these products. So that's kind of how I got to where okay. I am now. Since then, I've extended out the use of sulforaphane into clinical protocols. So there's lots of things that sulforaphane is capable of doing, which probably a lot of your listeners are not aware of. But before yeah. we get into that, the chemical structure of sulforaphane, just give everyone kind of a the background on what type of molecule it is and where it comes from. So I mentioned phytochemicals before, so that's just posh, posh word for chemicals that come out of plants. And the most abundant of those are what we call polyphenols and they're big bulky chemical structures. We'll get to the sulforaphane in a minute. But the things we're familiar with are molecules like the um, ECGC from green tea, the curcumin from turmeric, the resveratrol from grapes and so on and so forth. So they're molecules we're familiar with. They're big and bulky. Now, sulforaphane, on the other hand, is a linear-shaped molecule by comparison. It's long and lean and it's quite small and it's fat-soluble. And that gives it the ability to easily glide through cell membranes. And so it's highly absorbable, but we talk about bioavailability. So the absolute bioavailability of sulforaphane is about 
compared with the polyphenols, which is around about 1% to 10%. So those big bulky molecules don't get into the cells. We used to think that polyphenols, because they're naturally antioxidant in nature, we thought they would get through the cells, out of the gut, into the bloodstream, into the cells, and would provide antioxidants in the cells. It turns out they don't actually get in there. That's not to say they don't do anything, but they don't do that. They're actually prebiotics for the gut microbiota. So basically the microbiota break down these big bulky molecules into tiny fragments, and that's what we absorb. So sulforaphane doesn't suffer that liability, if you like, and it's Within an hour, it peaks in the bloodstream in an hour with this high bioavailability, and it gives it properties that these other molecules don't have. And they're more predictable as well, because if you're relying on your gut microflora to break down a polyphenolic molecule, your system or your microflora will break it down into different fragments from mine or anybody else's. So it's a bit unpredictable. Where the polyphenols have their greatest advantages, antioxidants, is in the gut. So if you're going to eat a, a barbecued steak with all that delicious blackened stuff on the outside, that's where the carcinogens are and that's where these free radical or reactive oxygen species reside. So what the polyphenols do is they can directly quench those carcinogens right there in the gut and that's a little understood property. But whether the French knew the science or not or the Europeans or any country where marinating steak is a popular thing to do. You know, you would marinate your steak with red wine, perhaps a bit of lemon zest, some other herbs and spices. And these direct acting antioxidants actually can quench a lot of those carcinogens mm. in the gut. So that's a bit of a side story. Sulforaphane is actually not a direct acting antioxidant the way the polyphenols are. Quite surprisingly, it's really a weak pro-oxidant and you go really I don't want pro-oxidants I want antioxidants the thing is that what sulforaphane does it's a very potent activator of a cellular switch or a transcription factor called NRF2 and NRF2 is capable of governing about 200 protective genes so when you activate or when you let sulforaphane activate the switch NRF2 NRF2 now goes into the nucleus and starts producing about 200 or so protective genes. Amongst those genes are the genes coding for a number of antioxidant compounds. And when we say sulforaphane is not antioxidant in its own right, but it has an antioxidant effect, it's because it's switching on our own internal antioxidant enzyme defences which actually are many times more potent in their ability to quench radical species than, you know, the vitamin C's and E's and even the polyphenols that are in the gut. So Okay. Sure. The first time I ever heard of sulforaphane as many years ago is that it had anti-cancer properties. Now, it, does it follow the same pathway as upregulating NRF2 that produces the anti-cancer effect, or is that a different effect of sulforaphane? Could you go into that in a little detail? Sure. So yes, you're correct, but that's not the only thing that sulforaphane does. It has a number of different anti-cancer effects. The best known are the ones that are tied to NRF2. 
So when you activate NRF2, not only are these antioxidant enzymes switched on, there's a whole host of detoxification enzymes. And one of the primary things our cells do to protect us against cancer, well, we want to make sure our DNA doesn't mutate. So there's an enzyme called quinone reductase, which is right at the very end of the detoxification pathway. And its job is finally to snitch the free radical species away from the DNA to make sure it doesn't mutate. Not many people talk about quinone reductase. It's not well known in the detoxification circles, but it is very potent. Not only does it act in a sense like superoxide dismutase to directly quench the free radical species, but if those um, radical species are about to hit the DNA, quinone reductase grabs that entity back and represents it back to the beginning of the detoxification cycle where it runs through the loop again. So this detoxification is really an important key to ensuring that we don't get DNA mutations. It's not the only thing, of course, but it's, it's a very powerful step. And um, I think people talk about detoxification but not really understand what's happening. And if we can upregulate quinone reductase nutrigenomically, we have a powerful tool to help us at least prevent that carcinogenic process. Sure. And sulforaphane, I mean, I've heard wonderful things about it in recent years. Could you briefly describe some of the research that's gone into the anti-cancer effect? Uh, some people think that it can cure cancer uh, once you have cancer. Some people think it's the most wonderful anti-cancer nutrigenomic uh, <laughs> substance out there. Uh, so uh, what would you say, um, based on the research, how strong of an anti-cancer effect does it have? Has it run through placebo-controlled studies for many years where some people took the sulforaphane and some people didn't? How do we end up at that point mm -hmm. where we say, hey, look at this, sulforaphane has a strong anti-cancer effect? Okay. So firstly, let me say there is no one molecule or food that's going to prevent the cancer process. By the time a person develops diagnosable cancer, there's been a whole series of fail-safe mechanisms in our cells that have failed one step at a time. So it's layer by layer by layer. So there is no single molecule that's going to prevent that. Um, and there is no single molecule that is going to cure that process. And in fact, by the time the DNA mutates, both strands of the DNA have mutated, it may be completely impossible to repair that DNA strand and cancer isn't always curable. I think we have to understand that. Um, and the so-called health food community, I think, doesn't really understand that. They think that, you know, you can go into fasting and you can do this, that and everything else and you are going to cure cancer. Sometimes it's incurable because so many of those protective mechanisms have failed. Now, back to your initial part of your question. The original research that brought sulforaphane to the fore was in the early 90s. So a group at Johns Hopkins University started doing this work. I don't know exactly what inspired them to start looking at this, but <clears throat> they discovered that sulforaphane was capable of activating quinone reductase and it was capable then of preventing 
um, the carcinogenetic process from occurring. So this was all in vitro work and early animal work. Your question about clinical trials, the answer to that is you'd never get an ethics committee ever to approve such a study in humans where uh, you're doing a, you know, a study to compare treated and untreated cancer patients or even protectively. So I was thinking more of an observational study, you know, these <laughs> longitudinal studies where people who ate a lot of broccoli or particularly took sulforaphane supplements, uh, you know, observationally after five or 10 years, sure. what was the rate of cancer? I didn't know yeah. if there were studies out there like that. Okay, so there's a, there are a number of epidemiological studies which look at populations. And so they've looked at people who eat so many serves of cruciferous vegetables a week, and there's definitely a protective effect. Um, there are quite a number of research groups who've looked at that. And even to the point, there's a study on prostate cancer prevention showing that even one extra serve of cruciferous vegetable, I think it's broccoli in particular, a week, was enough to make a measurable change in a person's uh, susceptibility to prostate cancer. So it's been long acknowledged in the nutrition science community that cruciferous vegetables have properties over and above vegetables in general. So what we say is we all need to eat more vegetables than we do. In fact, um, in Australia, as in the US, we are woefully under-eating plant food. I mean, it's quite appalling. The most recent of these food surveys showed that something like 96% of Australian adults do not consume the recommended five serves of vegetables a day. And I think in the US, you recommend more serves than that, but you aren't eating them either. I do. <laughs> oh, you do. And I do. But, you know, we're, <laughs> we're that extra 4% or whatever it is that's not in the stats. So it's really very concerning that you know, we could be a lot healthier if we just followed the nutrition guidelines, boring as they might seem on a piece of paper. But there's been some other studies done more recently looking at quantities of plant food. In fact, there was a study done in 2010 in Germany by a researcher called Hermsdorf. And she looked at college students and the amount of vegetables they were eating a day. And it was split up into three groups. So it was around about 300 grams of vegetables a day. So it's the placebo group, the 300 grams of vegetables a day and greater than 600 grams of vegetables a day. And they then measured blood markers of inflammation. And there was a dramatic change in the reduction in inflammatory markers in the 600 grams a day vegetable group can compared with the 300-odd and the placebo group. So pretty dramatic. I mean, I have no doubt that there is enormous power in plant food nutritionally. When I started practice way back in the 70s, we had so few supplements available to us. So I grew up knowing that food has power. Unfortunately, we've been trained to think now that the soil is so poor and there are so many pesticides being used and other agricultural chemicals in our food supply there's nothing left in our food supplement company says please buy our multivitamin supplements and while there are elements of truth in the fact that the soil is not what it could be and we are using too many agricultural chemicals the fact that Hermsdorf did this study in 2010 and demonstrated a significant reduction in inflammatory markers 
reinforces the fact that in spite of the fact that the food's not perfect or the soil's not perfect, we can still have pretty substantial improvement on food. So to me, I have a food first philosophy um, and I'm not seeing patients clinically anymore, but I do educate clinicians. So lots of seminars and training and so on. And we're in an era now where megavitamins are being pumped. And I often talk to clinicians who are telling me of a patient with a problem. And I say, have you asked about the diet? No. So why are we not looking at food as a foundation? So it's a big problem. Uh, and we could do a whole podcast on that. Uh, I wanted to move on. I know yeah. our listeners are very familiar with the vegetable uh, diet being very helpful for mm -hmm. health and longevity. Uh, what about sulforaphane supplements that have been used recently uh, in the last few years? What are some of the studies that back up the use of those? Okay. So the studies that had some measurable data started coming out about 2011 and the first of those was some studies in um, type 2 diabetes. A research group was using, they're actually using a, a fairly low potency broccoli sprout powder. And unfortunately for that, they had to give 10 grams as the dose to the participants in the study. Broccoli sprout powder is not exactly delicious and 10 grams is a lot to have to take. But anyway, the um, research group persisted for the 30 days of the study and there were significant changes in some of the markers of atherosclerosis and also markers of type 2 diabetes. So that was the beginning. And they were looking at what was the equivalent of about 40 milligrams sulforaphane yield a day to do that. So that's quite a lot. So then there have been other studies looking at environmental pollutants and their effect in asthma and emphysema. So there were some studies looking at that. There was a, an autism study done in 2014, which was really interesting. It was looking at autistic adults 18 and over um, and demonstrated quite significant changes in a lot of the behavioural markers that you see with autism. Again, manageable doses if you've got a, a supplement that's got a high enough potency. And then there's another group of studies which look at the gut and look at the helicobacter pylori infection because sulforaphane through a totally unrelated to NRF2 mechanism is capable of killing the helicobacter uh, organism which causes stomach cancer and other things of that Ulcers, kind. Ulcers, right? Ulcers, first yeah. of all, yeah. Okay. When I first came across sulforaphane, people said, oh, just eat a bunch of broccoli. <laughs> but it's not as simple as that as far as getting that into your bloodstream. Doesn't it go through a process before it can be absorbed as truly sulforaphane? And just eating a lot of broccoli, while it's good for you, you're probably not getting as much sulforaphane as you think you are? Yeah. Well, there's a couple of reasons to explain that. First of all, eating a bunch of broccoli is going to give you folate and other vitamins and minerals, so you still do that regardless. If you're looking for the clinical benefits of sulforaphane itself, the, the way the broccoli plant grows is it starts with a very tiny seed, and when that seed sprouts, it contains, or the seed contains, glucoraphanin, which is a precursor molecule in a little sac, 
a morosinase enzyme, which is separately compartmentalised, and they're sitting there in the seed doing nothing. When you sprout that seed for several days, the glucoraphanin and the morosinase remain in their separate compartments. But as the plant matures and grows larger into the head of broccoli vegetable that we're familiar with, we've actually diluted both that glucoraphanin and the morosinase. And in order to produce sulforaphane, that enzyme morosinase needs to act on the glucoraphanin. So basically when you chop your broccoli up or you bite it or chew it, that's when the morosinase acts on the glucoraphanin to produce your sulforaphane. So it's produced in situ, if you like. So as you're chewing it, it's being produced at the time. The problem with the vegetable story is that because it's now so diluted, you're really not getting very much sulforaphane. The other reason is that as years have gone by, farmers have produced varieties of broccoli that are going to last in the supermarket or the fruit and veggie store for several days, are going to last in your fridge for a week without deteriorating. Unfortunately, those varieties that they've bred for the market are not the ones which have high glucoraphanin. And if you don't have that high glucoraphanin to start with in the seed, you still don't get much. And so, the highest glucoraphanin uh, content is in the seeds or the sprouts, as what I've yes. heard, correct? Yes. So it's in the seed and then you sprout it for a few days. There's almost as much in the sprout as there was in the seed. But you've waited several months now to grow that all the way up to the head of broccoli and it's quite dilute by the time it gets there. So that's one factor. And the other one is if you go to even sprout your own broccoli, which lots of people like to do, you've really got no way of knowing the glucoraphanin content in the seed that you bought. They'll grow beautiful little green sprouts and they're nice sources of nutrition, uh, but you may or may not have a significant level of sulforaphane. So from a clinician's point of view, I'm interested in more of a standardised approach where I know that I'm going to give a patient a supplement which has roughly a measurable standardised quantity per dose. And if I can't do that, it's unpredictable. One of the problems that we do see in the market, and I think one of the reasons that sulforaphane is not so well known as perhaps something like curcumin, is that a lot of the sulforaphane supplements or so-called sulforaphane supplements on the market contain only the glucoraphanin precursor and none of the morosinase enzyme. You cannot produce sulforaphane from that. So they're called broccoli seed extracts. So what they do in a manufacturing sense is they take the seed, mill it, deactivate the enzyme, and then extract the glucoraphanin, and that's what goes in the supplement. Now, their defence for what they're doing is to say that the gut microflora have morosinase-like enzymes which can now convert the glucoraphanin to sulforaphane. That's sort of true. If you have a healthy microbiome or healthy microbiota, they are capable of metabolising, say, up to 10%. You'll get 10% of the yield you would get if you'd been taking the whole supplement. So, therefore, you're going to get sulforaphane, but you're going to get a very limited quantity. Now, if you're sick or you've had a course of antibiotics or in some, for some other reason your gut microbiome is not in particularly good shape, 
you don't know whether you can convert any of that glucoraphanin into sulforaphane at all. And basically, a lot of people don't find it works and it doesn't work because it can't work because it's not producing the threshold level of sulforaphane that you need to get a clinical effect. So if you're thinking, I want to upregulate NR or I want to activate NRF2 and then upregulate these protective genes, there's always a threshold dose that trips a switch. And if you don't get to that threshold, usually nothing happens. Okay. And I suspect that's the issue. So you definitely want to look for a supplement that would have a standardized and known amount of actual sulforaphane in it if you want to get the maximum effect from it. Well, you would, unless you're in Australia and our Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, which is like your FDA, doesn't let you put that on the label. And the reason they don't let you put your sulforaphane on the label is the product actually doesn't have any sulforaphane in the product. It has glucoraphanin and marotinase in the product, but it doesn't have sulforaphane. So because it's not in there, you can't say contains and you can't even uh. say yields. So what we do suggest is if someone's looking for a supplement, look for something that's 100% whole broccoli sprout where all the company has done is it's grown the sprouts carefully, dried them carefully and retained that and now you've got everything that was originally in that sprout, nothing's added, nothing's removed except the water, and you have then your best chance of having an intact supplement that's going to give you what you're looking for. Okay. Well, let's get into a few functional questions that you might or might not be able to answer, uh, but we'll get into that as far as people who want to take sulforaphane for its health-promoting effects. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned dosage. You want a certain dosage in order to trip the protective genes and the NRF2 activation. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. is that dosage? Um, look, when I look at the clinical trials that are available, we, we're kind of looking at around about 20 milligrams daily as being an average amount. I mentioned the diabetes study before that was 40, but some of the others, the asthma study was 18, the autism study was 14. So I tend to say aim for 20 milligrams a day as your dose. 10 milligrams is often adequate, at least as a starting point, and then the person can titrate the dose up as necessary, depending on what you're trying to do with it. But anything less than 10 milligrams a day, I think you're really wasting your time. So, okay, less than 10 milligrams, probably not, not that great. Uh, and then you mentioned, depending on what effect you want to see from the sulforaphane, you might do a higher dose. What determines whether or not you, uh, you would say someone should take a higher dose? Well, all I'm basing those data on are the existing clinical trials. Uh, so we okay. know the dose with the diabetes dose is a bit higher. We know the helicobacter dose is around about the same. It's a bit higher. Other than that, um, so that's our, that's our starting point for considering dose. Clinically, we usually start at a baseline level and depending on how the patient's responding, we move up or move down. And it's important to mention that there are situations with sulforaphane where you actually need to reduce the dose. Can I explain that? 
No. Yes, please explain that because we did have some questions about uh, the dosage and should you take a high dose for a little while, take a break for a week, and then take another high dose. I'm sure the studies probably have some uh, enlightenment on that topic, and you can go into that a little bit. Okay, so look, the, the issue I was wanting to mention with the lower dose is this. In a patient who has severe dysbiosis, so in other words, the gut microflora badly imbalanced and they have too much of the bad bugs and not enough of the good bugs in simple English. So when those people take sulforaphane, so even a standard dose of 20 milligrams, they will sometimes get a really severe exacerbation of gut symptoms, bloating and pain and griping and diarrhea and all those sorts of things. The trap is then to say, well, this stuff doesn't agree with me. I'm never taking that again. What they've actually done is they've diagnosed the dysbiosis, which if we manage the dose properly, they can go ahead and correct. The reason is this. One of the molecules which is activated in the gut lining, the gut epithelium under the influence of sulforaphane is called beta-defensin. And beta-defensin is a natural antimicrobial compound which selectively destroys pathogens and completely ignores the commensals. So it's quite common in the world of gut health for people to take antimicrobials, whether they're antibiotics, whether they're antimicrobial herbs and oils and so on. But those things are not selective. So in the process of killing off the pathogen, they're also damaging the friendly commensal organisms that are there. Whereas by activating beta-defensins, and there are other similar molecules in the gut lining, we know that we are then selectively destroying the pathogens. So if the dose is so high that it's destroying these pathogens too quickly, we're likely getting a die-off response, which means now the dead bugs that you've just killed are releasing a whole lot of their toxic metabolites into the gut and causing or exacerbating the existing state of inflammation. All we do, if the patient has that, we just drop the dose right back. And I sometimes have people who can only tolerate the amount that fits on the tip of a very sharp knife blade. And they take that once a day. How do I go? I'm okay. I do that twice a day and gradually creep that dose up. And it normally takes about two weeks and they will creep that dose up to the 20 milligrams a day. In the process of doing that, they usually feel enormous relief because they have actually helped to restore at least part of the ecology of the gut environment. And that's a little understood feature of sulforaphane, but it's very important because we teach a program called Gut Ecology and Metabolic Modulation to clinicians, and step one in the gut ecology part is to let sulforaphane do that work and get that process started because a lot of these gut problems are associated with enormous amounts of inflammation in the gut. And these people who can't tolerate different foods, um, they can't digest food, a lot of that is because the gut epithelium is partially eroded. It's highly inflamed. The enzymes, digestive enzymes are not being produced and you're getting all sorts of paradoxical responses to food molecules and they say oh look I need to cut out oxalates and histamines and 
lectins and all these sorts of things from my food when in actual fact those foods are not the problem. When you fix the gut, you can happily enough eat those foods. I've had people who are down to five and six foods they can tolerate because they have gradually eliminated all of the things that disagree with them. And you can see that's a, a very slippery slope to be on because now they can't, can't eat enough of the foods that are necessary to repair any of that damage. So sulforaphane often comes in. We can't achieve success with everybody doing that, but I would say that 90%, 85 90% of the patients we work with respond well to that approach. Okay. And as far as dosing goes now, how about the length of taking a sulforaphane supplement? Uh, is it just kind of a daily thing you take for a long time or is it something you would take periodically that would get the best effects? Uh, what have you learned from your practice or from the research? If we go back to the food first philosophy, if we'd never heard of sulforaphane and we were eating the recommended quantity of plant foods daily, we are getting a whole host of NRF2 activators in there. So none, none of the plant foods have the same ability to activate NRF2 as sulforaphane does, but combined, you are getting this massive combined effect. So you could happily survive without sulforaphane for your entire life, living the healthy lifestyle because mild exercise activates NRF2, sunshine activates NRF2. So... That's how human cells work. What we've done is we've said, okay, we know that people who come to us as patients as well as most of the population don't eat enough vegetables, don't do enough exercise, don't get enough sun, et cetera, et cetera. Here is a way of trying to, at least in the short term, counter that. The early epidemiological studies showed that if you're eating one of the cruciferous vegetables about three times a week, that was adequate for a sustained effect. So this is more like a maintenance approach. I mean, I was just wondering then, I mean, many people that listen to this podcast are very healthy. They watch their diet uh, and they do all kinds of interventions to be young sure. and healthy. Would sulforaphane supplement be beneficial to them anyway? I believe it more. is. Yeah, because as we age, NRF2 activity diminishes, so too do all of the other protective enzymes. So we're losing those beneficial effects as we get older. Therefore, you could still be eating this lovely diet and, and living this good lifestyle, but this gradual diminution means you could probably do with a helping hand. So by taking uh, an NRF2 activator daily like sulforaphane, you can just help to creep that enzyme activity or that gene expression up to a level which is more akin to what it was when you were younger. So to me, it's something you can take every day. It's a food supplement. I mean, you could eat broccoli every day and there's nothing going to go wrong. You can do the same thing. You could eat peaches every day. So as a food supplement, I don't believe it's having uh, any adverse effect in that regard. Are there any long-term effects that are negative from taking it daily for, say, four or five years or something like that? Has anything cropped up in the research? Well, nothing that we know of. Mind you, I don't see that there's been a study that's been sustained over that period of time. Okay. But there is a caution that I do need to raise. And you mentioned cancer before. So 
when a person develops cancer, the cancer cells are tending to hijack all of those cellular processes in the normal cells. The risk with that is just as you're using sulforaphane to upregulate or activate NRF2 and upregulate those protective enzymes, you are also going to be giving the cancer cell the ability to upregulate its defences in the same way. So we don't have an easy answer to this, but I discourage anybody with active cancer from taking large amounts of any supplement. I prefer that they try to do this using the principles of Mother Nature. I simply don't know, nor does anybody else. It's raised in the literature as a caution, and there are chemotherapeutic drugs which inhibit NRF2, and that's the mechanism. They do have enormous side effects because once you start inhibiting NRF2 in the cancer cell, you're inhibiting it everywhere else, so you've lost your ability to repair anyhow. So there's, there's just no easy answer with established cancer. The other caution I would put there is a patient who's on chemotherapy is on those drugs to kill the cancer cells, and those cancer cells, are those drugs, are largely pro-oxidant in nature. So they are deliberately creating a whole lot of free radical activity. If you get in there with any sort of a supplement that's now going to try and upregulate the antioxidant defence enzymes of the cell, are we countering part of what the oncologist is trying to do with his therapy? Again, I don't know the answer. I don't know whether the sulforaphane is potent enough to be able to counter what some of those extremely potent drugs can do. But it's just a caution. We just simply don't know, and I have to raise those cautions. Okay. Because I know a lot of people go out and they think, oh, I've read about this stuff, it's good for cancer. Exactly. Let me take 10 times the dose on yes. this thing. And it's heartbreaking when you realise that they're desperate, and I understand that, but this is not the solution to the problem. And uh, as far as functional things, is there any uh, science or research that would say you should be taking sulforaphane in the morning or at night, before exercise, after exercise, or those things really don't matter too much? They don't matter because when you upregulate those protective genes, the enzymes which are being produced from that increased gene expression have a life of several days. So once you get into the process, you've sort of got this level that's like a maintenance level there. So I don't think it matters. From my point of view, I take whatever I'm taking once a day and that's it. So basically I take double the dose once a day rather than taking it night and morning. And okay. it really doesn't seem to make any difference. Of course, I mentioned early in the podcast that you are the founder of Cell Logic, and you do have a couple of products that contain sulforaphane or the precursors for sulforaphane, as we talked mm -hmm. earlier. And I just wanted to give you uh, a little short time here to describe a couple of the products that you do use. So out of as I was doing my PhD, and of course, then I'm researching um, the broccoli sprouts and what works and what doesn't, and I came to realise that it was possible to develop 100% broccoli sprout product where you retain the glucoraphanin and you retain the enzyme and so that that can go into a powder, it can go into a capsule. So that's what we've done and Cell Logic, my company, as its name suggests, is looking at the logic of protecting human cells 
And so we produced an ingredient we called Enduracell, um, and we used that ingredient then in different broccoli sprout products, but with the aim always of yielding a daily dose of about 20 milligrams a day is, is what we're trying to offer. And this is what we use in clinics around Australia and other parts of the world where we get to talk to clinicians about what we can do with nutrigenomically active molecules like sulforaphane. All right. Well, Dr. Christine Houghton, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to join you, Justin. While conducting the interview, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking about the one disease for which we don't have many effective treatments, cancer. Now, I'm glad to know about another natural nutrient that has shown some effectiveness in reducing the cancer threat. Eat healthy, get some exercise, and we'll all live a little longer, long enough to benefit from advanced rejuvenation technology. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.